And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Howard Wilson is one of the smartest and most incisive people I've ever met in American politics. His instincts were honed in the intense media combat of New York City, where he helped elect uh, Chuck Schumer to the U.S. Senate. He was Hillary Clinton's press secretary in her Senate race in 2000, was her communications director in her run for the presidency in 2008. He's run the Democrat Congressional Campaign Committee, and for the last 10 years, he's worked closely with former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg, who's making noises about running for president in 2020. I sat down with Howard in New York last week to ask him about that and to swap war stories from several decades in politics. Howard Wilson, it's great to be with you. Good to be Uh, with you. Old friend and, I have to say, member of the senior advisory board of uh, of the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, because you're a graduate of the University of Chicago. We'll get to that. But I got to thank you right up top uh, for that. This whole, you're uh, like running your little piece of the world here with Mike Bloomberg, but the whole journey uh, began in more humble, in a more humble way. Most places are more humble than the one, <laughs> than the one I'm sitting in. <laughs> and uh, But uh, tell me about, um, yeah, we should point out we're, we're at your offices here at the Bloomberg Foundation. Tell me um, about your childhood in, in Yonkers. Sure. Um, my parents were both teachers, um, and um, they were divorced when I was uh, pretty young. Um, I saw my father regularly. He was, he was definitely involved um, in my life, throughout my life. Um, he was a social studies teacher. He was, taught, taught history. Did he inculcate studies. you with an interest in all of that? Absolutely. Um, a lot of books and a lot of talk of history and politics in my family, uh, both my immediate family and my extended family. Um, but as involved as my father was, um, I was the only child of a single mother, and um, my mom uh, did an awful lot of, of raising me. And she taught in the elementary schools she did. of she New taught York, right? In, she did. She taught in New York City in the... 70s and the 80s when that was not the easiest time to be a teacher in New York City and she taught special education she was uh-huh. very dedicated to those kids yeah kids well you know I I have a soft spot for special ed teachers because I have a I had a special needs child right and she benefited from the heroic work of a, a number of teachers I remember a lot of nights uh, when my mom was on the phone with parents um, of the kids she was teaching, walking them through um, ways to, you know, improve the lives of their children. And um, she taught in the Bronx. Um, she taught at a couple of schools in the Bronx. One of them was in the South Bronx. And uh, as difficult as it was to teach in New York City in the 70s and the 80s, it was even more difficult to teach in the South Bronx. Um, but it was really... Probably language issues uh, there. Yeah. It was really a labor of love uh, for her. You know, you and I have talked about this, but she also struggled uh, with depression, which we've talked about a lot here on this podcast, um, an illness, and should be regarded as such. But uh, that was a lifelong issue for her. It was. Um, it was something that she struggled with. It was Were you so- aware of it as a child? You know, I've, I've thought about that um, the, the times that, you know, maybe you see glimpses of a parent struggling um, and what that does to a kid. Um, I became more aware of it as I got older. Uh, I don't know how aware uh, I was of it when I was actually living in the home as a child or as a teenager. Um, but certainly as I grew older, um, I became very much aware that uh, she struggled with depression. You know, my, uh, as you know, my father committed suicide. And um, uh, it was shocking. I was 19 years old when that happened. Um, And part of the reason I was shocked was that he never, you know, he never wanted to burden me uh, with his with his struggles, with his problems. I'm sure it was the same with your mom. A a lot of the I think the misconception and, and, and you you have talked a lot about this and you know a lot about this. But my sense is a lot of the 
misconception <clears throat> people have around depression is that it is a constant thing. Um, and if something is constant, it's easier to detect. Um, in my mom's case, I remember you know, lots of laughter, lots of happy days, lots of energy and um, energetic activity um, that, that, you know, if on any given day you would think there's no way that this is somebody who struggles with depression, but there were other periods uh, where, you know, that none of that was the case. And um, uh, I think she uh, really did everything she could to overcome it in order to be a mother to, uh, a single mother to, uh, to me. Um, I, don't, I don't think she thought that she had much other choice. Um, it was just the two of us really alone in the apartment a lot of the time, and I am sure that she did everything she could to will herself around towards mothering. Um, because the, um, the alternative was, was pretty grim. Yeah. Um, you went to, you, your parents were public school teachers, but you didn't go to a public school. I did not. Um, so my immediate circumstances financially were fairly modest. Um, my mom and I lived in a pretty modest apartment, um, in Yonkers, um, at a time when Yonkers itself was fairly pretty modest. modest. Yeah. Um, but her parents uh, were, were people of means, and they were supportive. Um, I'm sure that they were helpful to her on a you know, monthly basis, not to create a, a life of luxury, but to help with necessities. And they also paid for my education. So I went to a private school here in New York, Fieldston, um, and then they also paid for my college at the University of Chicago. So um, I kind of had this little bit of a dual existence where as I said, my, my immediate circumstances were, were fairly modest, um, but I was also very well aware that there was you know, real wealth in the world. My, my grandparents had money, and um, kids that I went to high school with um, certainly had money, um, and so it was an interesting kind of dual existence in that sense. And, and, and just to get back to politics, were, New York politics is a show, and it certainly was back then. Yes. Um, what were the, that must have been in the sort of Ed Koch, Mario Cuomo was, era. Yeah. Um, you know, my father um, really imbued me with a love of history and reading. Um, his parents um, did not graduate from college, but they were voracious readers. Um, I would go. Now, so over, was there's the classic immigrant yes. kind of story? Uh, they, they themselves were not um, immigrants, but they were the children of immigrants. Mm -hmm. Um, and when I would go to my father's parents, um, who I saw very regularly, they were, they were very involved in my life. I was really, really blessed to have four amazing grandparents that were very involved in my upbringing. I lived with my mother's parents until I was five with my mother. And then I saw my father's parents, um, pretty much weekly. You know, every time I would go over there, they would be sitting in the living room reading a book and they would recommend the book to me, or they would talk about what was in the book. They'd be reading the paper. We'd always talk about what was in the paper. And um, it felt as if um, the life that they had led was kind of touched by history. Uh, at least that's the stories that they told. Um, and not always happily. Um, there was a lot of conversation in, in my father's house, uh, my father's parents' house of the Holocaust and the impact of the Holocaust on their family and the Jewish people uh, as a whole. Did they come from G Germany or Eastern Europe? Uh, so their, their people all sort of came from east, east of Germany, mm -hmm. uh, Poland and Russia. Um, and, you know, I, I have a very early memory of them talking about the Holocaust and what it meant to them that, you know, they were corresponding with relatives in, uh, in the old country, if you will, uh, with some frequency, and then all of a sudden the letters stop. Um, and that was a, uh, obviously a pretty uh, telling indication that something terrible uh, was happening and had happened. Um, so I, I sort of felt like there was this life that had been touched by history. It was all fairly, in some sense, it was very modest and ordinary. They weren't, they, they, these were not people who were congressmen or, or mayors or presidents. But um, I think I learned pretty early on that um, circumstances can really impact 
what happens to people. And uh, you, it's you've good commented to be involved in that. You've commented recently on um, this uh, surge in anti-Semitic acts here in this country, in Pittsburgh being the most tragic uh, of them. And you must see them in the context of history. I do. I, I feel like we're, we're living through history again, um, not in ways that we would have necessarily imagined or certainly hoped for. Um, and I'm, I am enormously hopeful based on the results of the last election. Um, uh, but I am worried about the larger set of circumstances that a lot of us um, find ourselves in and see around us. I mean, if you look at the Western world, uh, there's a lot of turmoil and a lot of anger and a lot of unrest and tumult. And um, it's, a, it's a worrisome time. And you see phrases from that you've, you, know, you saw in the past about globalists and international bankers and, uh, you know, the corrupt media. Uh, some of it was, has been aimed from the president of the United States at the guy you work for. You know, he actually hasn't been... Was he one of the people featured in the no, campaign ad? he was not. No. I see. Okay. No. He has not I withdraw actually, that then. Yeah. He's not been overly critical of, of Mike. Um, but I, you know, I, I, the... Phrases like that have echoes in history, and they're they're not good ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, as I said, I, I think it's a I think it's a worrisome time. Uh, having said that, as I as I said, I think that there was a um, a real reaction to a lot of this on the part of the American people in the last midterms. You had a historic turnout, and you had you know forty seats flipping in the House, which given the gerrymandering and the redistricting was a, was a lot of seats. Yeah. Um, you know, we were, we were pretty much close to maxing out. Yeah. And you, you are not a passive player in this process. I, w- I want to get to that, but let's establish your bona fides to talk about that. Um, you went off to the University of Chicago. I did. Um, why did you go to Chicago? A couple of reasons. One, my mother's father, my grandfather, was from Chicago, and he had gone to the University of Chicago. Oh, is that right? Um, he had to withdraw during the Depression, and he never graduated. And it was really a dream of his, I think, to see a child or a grandchild go to school and eventually come out of it with a diploma, which I managed to um, scrape by with <laughs> after after an join ex- the club, brother. <laughs> after an extended visit, yeah. uh, uh, so that was one reason. Um, and the other, you know, quite frankly, it was the best school I got into. Um, when I applied to Chicago, the acceptance rate was about 35%. Yeah. And now it's, as you know, Eight or yeah, less than yeah. 10%. Yeah. Uh, so I was... I know. It's fair to say that neither of us would have been graduates right. of the University of Chicago right. today. I yeah. was lucky to apply when I did. I was lucky to get in. I was, <laughs> I was very lucky to graduate. Um, but as you know, um, both from your time there and from, from what you're doing now, it's a tremendous institution. Yeah, it, it is. Um, you also must have been in Chicago at a very, you, you were there, if my math is right, during a pretty tumultuous time in Chicago very politics. Much so. The Harold Washington yep, the council years, wars. council wars, where yep. the council yeah. rebelled. So, there actually were some intimations of today in that fight where the white council members organized against the African-American mayor to stop him from yep. exercising power that previous mayors had exercised. I remember very vividly the day that Harold Washington died and seeing people just breaking down and crying on the streets in Hyde Park. Yeah. Um, you know, as you know, because you helped elect him, yeah. what he meant to people across Chicago and certainly in the Hyde Park community. Um, yeah, where he lived. Where he lived. Around the university. And where he represented. Um, yeah. It was a... Uh, it was a. It was a. Um, it was a, a difficult time for yeah. a lot of people. The sad thing about that, Howard, was you know, uh, well, I actually covered his first election, and then I worked for him in his re-election, and uh, uh, he had won that race for re-election, and there was a sense that okay, right. things have been settled now. The city council was going to be under uh, his control, and there was a sense that he's the mayor. 
And the, and the city had gotten comfortable with that notion. Uh, and, you know, seven months later or something, he, he died. And it was uh, really, really a sad thing for the city. And the vacuum that it created was devastating. We do a lot of work here at the Bloomberg Foundation with mayors and with cities. Mike was a mayor. He believes in sort of municipal leadership. Yeah. And one of the theories of our case is that leadership really matters, that the difference between, you know, a city that is successful and a city that is unsuccessful could be the difference between a great mayor and a bad one. And it's not always the case that great people are replaced uh, by equally great people. Um, and Harold Washington was a great man. Yeah. And um, sometimes when great men leave the stage, the losses really felt acutely. Well, I think uh, one thing that to me is um, true from city to city is that cities are very dynamic and it takes a larger than life figure to really lead a city. Uh, it's, it's very hard to, you can't be a shrinking violet and, and lead a city successfully. And Harold was anything but a shrinking violet. He was a he was a vivid personality, and he loved it. He loved being mayor. He, he, he loved being the face of Chicago. He used to say, you know, when the, they used to say, you'd mention Chicago in any city in the world, and they'd say, rat-tat-tat, Al Capone. And what do they say now? How's Harold? You know, and he just, he was a great, he was a great personality. You went, you went on to Duke to get a, I did. a master's degree. Was that because you just didn't know what you wanted to do? More or less. Uh-huh. And what you ended up doing was you were headed down the road to journalism. Yeah. I was a journalist, actually, briefly. I was a reporter at a weekly newspaper in Northern Virginia, um, which I really enjoyed. Um, but at some point, uh, I realized that I would rather be the person in the room than covering the people it's a in the classic. room. Classic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I used to wait outside the the executive for the executive session of the Fairfax City Council to end, and you would try to buttonhole people and find out what went on. And at some point, it occurred to me, like, wouldn't it be more fun to be in the room? You know, when I was trying to decide whether to leave uh, journalism to go into politics, I had an offer, and I was considering in some uh, old hand uh, at City Hall said to me, someday you're going to get tired of chasing right. people down the hallway to get the answer to a question that you already know the answer right. to. Right. The um, Hamilton obviously is, is full of brilliant songs and brilliant lines, but the one that resonated the most with me is, you know, I want to be in the room where it happens. Yeah. Um, and I think for a lot of us, we want to be in the room where it happens. And that led you home to Westchester eventually here, uh, right? To Indirectly, right, by working for Congresswoman Nita Lowy, yes. who was my congresswoman, uh, from Westchester. I worked for her in Washington. Um, uh, but it was really a, a thrill to work for your hometown member. Um, I had worked for a couple of members before her, for a couple of Congress members before her, for one from Indiana, right. uh, one from California. But it, when you work for your hometown member, it's a sort of a special affinity. And she's a an extraordinary person. Still, uh, still, still there. She's going to be the first woman chairman of the Appropriations Committee when Congress convenes no small thing. next year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did your report, did you, even though it was brief, did your uh, reporting experience help you? Um, I could probably helped me to write quickly. Um, and did it help you understand succinctly. the job of the reporter? Yes. Yes, I think that's true. Um, you had some sense of what it was that reporters wanted. Uh, how you could be helpful to them or not, <laughs> right? Depending on the circumstance. Yeah. And you're very good at both of those things, by the <laughs> way. But I, 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 you know, when I, uh, I, I feel like I spent half my career in politics explaining to clients that the job of the reporter is not necessarily to write down everything that you say and then con convert it into print and distribute it. They're not stenographers. Right. They're there to scrutinize and prod and poke and test. And sometimes it makes people uncomfortable, uh, but uh, and sometimes it's made us uncomfortable. Right. I um, I feel uh, I, I am I've not always been happy with how the New York papers and the New York media and especially the New York tabloids have covered me or covered the people I've worked for. Well, that's a freaking jungle, man. Uh, but I do feel somewhat blessed to have grown up politically in a period where 
we had these really amazing newspapers that are still around and still in many ways amazing, um, robustly covering the life of the city. Um, yeah. There's a there's a just there's an excitement um, about the New York City media market that uh, I have not encountered in any other uh, jurisdiction or any other geography in America, and I think it makes those of us who've worked here um, a little bit sharper. Maybe uh, you have to be on your toes a little bit more. Um, I, I love I love the New York Post. I, when I, I get up every morning <laughs> yeah. and I read the New York Post, it's the first thing first thing I read. Yeah, well, it's readable, and in a very short period of time, uh, lots of pictures, lots of it's headlines, a, and I, I would give it more credit than that. Yeah, they. they uh, it is interesting. Um, it's got a point of view. It's provocative. It's provocative. Yeah. Um, I didn't mean to denigrate that. Yeah. I mean, they just, they are a print paper that uh, sort of adapt, has adapted to the modern media age. So they know they've got to grab attention yeah. And, yeah. and they do grab attention. Yeah. So let me ask you about uh, Trump, uh, Donald Trump in this regard. And you must have run across him over the years in the city, in all your roles, and we'll get to some of your other roles. Uh, how much do you think that New York media environment helped shape who he is? Enormously. This is a guy who mastered the New York City media environment. And he understood that if you could be in the paper every day controlling the story or being part of the story, you were, you know, three quarters of the way towards your goal. And he is like that as president. I mean, yeah. I think he wakes up every day and instinctively understands that his goal for that day is to uh, control the conversation. Now, he doesn't always do it in ways that benefit him. Right. Uh, and he's obviously not the most disciplined And I'm not person. sure that he can discern whether it benefits him or I, not. I think that's true. But I think he, his training in New York has taught him that... You want to be in, in. You want to be in the conversation, and ideally, you want to be controlling the direction of the conversation. And I know I, I followed with interest the the press strategy of the Obama administration because, of course, you always follow with interest the press strategy if you're me of any administration. And I know some people argued. I think you sort of suggested, you know, we've got to play the long game here. It's mm -hmm. not about winning every day. Right. There are other people who sort of felt we've got to yeah. win every day. That was a debate Ram and I used right. to have every day. Yeah, every day. Yeah. And I think Trump is very much of the belief you got to win every day. Yeah. Not only at, and now it's not just every day. It's every, now it's every hour. Right. Right. Because of Twitter and social media. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I thought of that the other day when uh, two people you know very well, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, uh, were in his office, and it was. And and he invited the reporters in, and I think for the express purpose of creating yes. the scene that he got. Yes, him standing up to the two liberals for his wall, yeah. and saying, "I'm willing to go to any length to get this done to protect our country." Yep. Uh, you know, and by all accounts, he was thrilled with. You know, I think that uh, Schumer in particular seemed uh, seemed uh, satisfied that the president. Uh, embrace the notion of a government shutdown so enthusiastically but uh in the president's mind he, this was a show he was the center of the show he drove what the show was about and he got out of it what he wanted well i think there are a couple of things to remember so we talked about the new york the impact of the new york media market on him the second is the impact of of his television career right this is a guy who was a very successful television personality so he does have a pretty rich appreciation for what makes for good TV, why people tune in, why they stay. Yeah. That's a, that is a, a sort of a, another big influence on him. And I think the third is he's a marketer. Um, you know, my boss, Mike Bloomberg, likes to say he's not really a businessman. He's right. a promoter. He's a marketer. Right. And he's P.T. Barnum. Correct. If you combine the, the influence of the New York media market, uh, the influence of successful television personality and the influence of a successful promoter, that's Donald Trump. Yeah. Let me ask you about the other two people in that meeting, because you do know them well. Um, uh, and let's start with Pelosi. I want to talk in more in depth about Schumer because you work for him. Uh, but you also know her very well. Your wife uh, has uh, had w worked with Pelosi for years, continues to advise uh, Pelosi. 
What do you make of her status right now? I think that the uh, success that she has had in locking down a contentious uh, leadership fight is... It speaks to why she it speaks is to the why, leader. Yeah, it speaks to why she has the job. Um, yeah. She has done, in my opinion, an extraordinary job of managing a fractious, complicated caucus in the House. And not only in support of her own leadership, but in support of historic legislation like like the like the health care bill. Um, I think history will will say that she's been one of the most successful speakers uh, in our history. And I think you can see why in the last couple of weeks. I mean, she comes out of that election. There's all of this conversation about will she be replaced and who's going to replace her. And she just systematically went yeah. to work and diffused the challenge. Yeah. I've said it many times here and elsewhere. I mean, within those four walls, uh, I've never seen anybody better in terms of navigating that very, very difficult environment. Outside those four walls, is, is there are other questions. And in fact, some of the, you, you uh, through, uh, you ran a campaign for uh, Mike Bloomberg in this past election. It supported 24 candidates, 21 of whom won. Some of those candidates ran saying they wouldn't vote for Nancy Pelosi uh, for speaker. So the politics dictated in those districts that were swing districts that uh, they make that declaration. So why is that? Um, I I think over time, anyone who has a leadership position in the Congress is going to get tarred with the unpopularity of the institution. So at some point, whoever you are, your negatives are going to rise, your positives are going to fall, and you become a convenient target. Um, And there were uh, successful House candidates who distanced themselves uh, from her. I guess what I would say is that to the extent that the Republicans made this election a referenda on Nancy Pelosi, she won and they lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I assume that that's part of the case that she's making to newly elected members uh, in support of her uh, speakership. Um, what about Schumer? Yeah, tell me about your experiences with him. You left Nita Lowy to become his communications director when he ran for the U.S. Senate in 1998 against Al D'Amato, who was a tough, tough, uh, pugilistic, uh, quintessentially New York. He was from Yonkers, wasn't he? He was from Long Island. Long Island, that's right. So uh, so tell me about... uh, Uh, So um, I did go to work for Chuck when he was running for Senate against Al D'Amato, and Al D'Amato was, at that time perceived to be, you know, the bete noir of all of us good liberals and progressives in New, or- in New York. And he was, as you say, um, a very tough political customer, um, had run statewide successfully in New York twice before, uh, had vanquished some pretty tough people along the way, uh, and was a very wily and successful politician. And... Um, it felt like this was an important cause that we were all involved in. Uh, and it was a great campaign. Um, Chuck is, he's brilliant. He is tireless. He's indefatigable. Um, and working for him was a real education. Um, one of the things <laughs> that I do uh, when I get anxious um, in the closing days and weeks of a campaign is I will start coming to work earlier and earlier in order to sort of get my thoughts ready for the day and uh, make sure that my desk is clean and yeah. I'm ready to, to do what I need to do. And so... I thought you were going to say what I, what I would say is that when the campaigns were getting down to those final tense moments, my instinct was to eat. Oh, well, I'll do a little bit of that too. Um, <laughs> we can talk about that. But, um, and so, uh, you know, in the I don't last... Know you're allowed to say that in the Bloomberg headquarters. Exactly. Uh, in the last week of the campaign, I was getting to work increasingly early in order to kind of just compose myself. And it was dark out, and it was, I don't know, 4.30 in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning. and that, That's almost late at night, not early in the morning. <laughs> all of a sudden, the phone starts ringing. It's 5 in the morning. And I pick up the phone, and it's Chuck. 
someone has told him that I'm at work and he's up early because he's anxious and he wants to start talking about the day. And this happens the first day, the second day. Finally, the third day, I said, I'm here to avoid talking to you. This is my quiet time. I don't, I don't want to hear from you now. Um, but that's, did he respect that? He did. And that, but that's who he, I mean, he, he wanted this more than, than we did. And he was willing to work harder than any of us. And he is, as I said, he's, a, he's brilliant um, and indefatigable. Um, and so let me throw some criticisms that you hear about him that he's kind of, um, I don't want to say joyfully craven, but he, he loves the game. Uh, and sometimes it, it seems more like a game uh, than, uh, you know, I would say about Pelosi, the thing that people don't understand about her is she's very much focused on the substance of what she's doing and, you know, on the particulars of legislation and so on. He seems like a pal. I don't know if I would say that. Um, I, you know, I think he's he's very very smart. And no, so, I'm not. I, and, I'm and, not disputing and, that. But 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 very substantive in in my experience. I mean, he he knows the ins and outs of the legislative details pretty well from from my uh, time with him. He certainly. Um, understands the New York City media market and so he grew up in that environment he did. too and he and he 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 understands the value of press and what you need to do to get it and the importance of communications but I and I think he is not the same person he was when he was 25 right so press might have been uh in ends in and of itself when he was in his 20s I think it is very much a means to an ends mm -hmm, for now. him now and uh, my sense is that his uh, his co his colleagues in the caucus really like him and admire him, and think that he does a good well, job. Well, plainly because they elect him yeah. and reelect him yeah. uh, as as the leader. What do you think his relationship with Trump is like? Because they obviously knew each other very well. I I, I think I'm remembering this right that Trump probably supported him uh, in the past, and I'm sure Schumer went to him and asked for his support and money in the past. Well, but So they know each other very, very well. I was thinking about that when I watched them in the Oval Office the other day. These are two guys, two New Yorkers. They, they come from the same arena. They've, they've been around, uh, you know, about for, for a, you know, a very long time. What do you think that means for their relationship? I wish it meant more. Um, I wish that there was something good to be said for New York about the fact that you have two New Yorkers in such positions of power. But when you look at Trump's positions vis-a-vis -vis the city, uh, they're negative. Here's a, here, could you imagine a, uh, a New Yorker goes down, becomes president, and signs legislation uh, getting rid of the tax break uh, that benefits New Yorkers, the state and local, state tax, local deduction. tax deduction? Um, inconceivable that any other New Yorker would do something like that. He is now single-handedly blocking funding for a really important tunnel uh, between New Jersey and New York. So I don't know what it really means for him to be a New Yorker in the context of the things that New York needs. Mm -hmm. um, we met in uh, 2000. I was working for the DSCC Democrat Senate Campaign Committee uh, on behalf of Hillary Clinton, who was running for the United States Senate, you were her press secretary, I guess recruited by a, a New York legend, Harold Ickes. How did that all come about? I, I was lucky. I was in, in the right place at the right time. Um, you know, if Hillary Clinton had run for Senate in Illinois, no one would ever have tapped me to be her communications director. But here she was running in a state. Although I once argued to her if she got elected from Illinois, she'd have a better chance to get elected president. Maybe maybe that's true. Um, you know, here here I was um, having just come off the successful Schumer campaign, um, which had been sort of the most recent successful Democratic statewide effort. I was kind of the obvious choice to to be involved, and um, I was in the right place at the right because time. Because she needed New Yorkers. She New York did. was new to her. Very much so. She needed people who understood the terrain. Yeah. And what did you, what, what, what did you learn about her in that, in that campaign? And, and how did she, did she change over the years in any way? Yeah, she got to be a better campaigner, mm -hmm. even, even over the time of the two-year um, campaign for Senate in 1999 and 2000. She became more comfortable 
more adept. And I actually think that you saw a version of that when she was running against Bernie Sanders in the primary here, where she really sort of cleaned his clock in the New York primary uh, in 16, because she was very comfortable in New York. She'd become really comfortable with the New mm -hmm. York environment. Um, but that was obviously not as, as true when she started. Um, she's a person of immense strength and fortitude and focus. Um, there are things that would that would keep you and I underneath our bed for weeks that she just gathers herself and stands up and carries on. And I think people on, they respect, they can see that they can respect it. Um, and, and it's a very admirable quality. In addition to the fact that she, she herself is very, 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 very smart, understands the details of legislation, very committed to, the causes that she had fought for her whole life. But the, the thing that I was always most impressed with was her strength um, and her focus and her fortitude. And as you know, when you're running a long campaign, I mean, you can, you can run a campaign for a month or two without those qualities. But if you're running a year and a half long campaign- It's a gauntlet. And you are under the enormous scrutiny from day one through to the end, that level of- uh, a focus, intensity, work ethic, strength, commitment. It was really important to success. She, um, there's another element that we're both familiar with, but you far more than I. There's always this weird dynamic around her in these campaigns. Um, there are these strange characters, <laughs> divisive characters. She, and I, and I'm, I've never fully understood why. Uh, you know, it's not how she would necessarily run the, her Senate office or the State Department. Why are her campaigns populated with with all these strange people, and why all the conflict? Well, we worked on those campaigns. Do I know. Do you exclude us from the list? No, I, well, I'm happy to include us, <laughs> but I would think there are people even stranger than us. <laughs> Let's just say, if, if such creatures. I mean, do well, look, exist. one of them, I've been openly critical of Mark Penn for a very long time. She had him in her in her inner circle and in her head, I think, for a very long time. You know, he's now out there as one of the president's great defenders, President Trump. I mean, wh why? I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a fair question. It's certainly a question that any of us who've worked for her uh, have asked ourselves. I mean, it must have been frustrating for you. You, you were with her uh, not just in that campaign, but 2006 and Notably, in two thousand and eight, I'll turn I'll turn the question on its head, um, and as say, any good press guy would, <laughs> and say that uh, one of the enormous benefits of working for Mike Bloomberg in any capacity is the incredibly positive uh, culture that he sets for his organizations, whether it's a campaign or city hall or a business or philanthropy. There is a, a Bloomberg way of doing things that is collegial and productive and focused and ethical, and um, I'm lucky to be a part of that. The you didn't thing, just turn the question on its head. You tried to turn the page on the question. I did. Yeah. The, the only thing I would, I would say, uh, going back a page, is that campaigns are hard, as you know, yes. better than I do. You've been in more of them. And... Hers was not the only one that had its fair share of dysfunction. In my experience, more campaigns than not have that kind of um, unfocused, unproductive energy from time to time. But you, but you know, your point is such a good one about Bloomberg. I mean, I was lucky enough to work for a candidate for president in Obama who who encouraged. Uh, the same kind of culture, and there was very little backbiting. There was very, there was a sense of shared mission and a sense of uh, collegiality that was really, I, I, you know, admittedly unusual, but it also, I think, was a key to our success. Yeah, I would agree. And uh, so, when you were watching, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll leave the Hillary thing after this question, but when you watched 2016, having gone through 2008, did a lot of the sort of problems that you saw emerge, were they familiar to you? It seemed that the campaign was, was better run in 16. I didn't get the same sense of the drama 
that we had in 08, in 16. Maybe I, it was happening and I was missing it. Well, someone told me their morning calls had 75 people on them. Hard um, to make strategy like that. No, it is. Um, I, I, the, the result in 16 was so shockingly upsetting that, you know, I'm not sure what, what I would attribute it to. Um, but um, I don't think that uh, the campaign that I saw from the outside in 16 looked better than the one that I experienced from the inside in 08. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to plow this ground any further because I know that you're too, too crafty uh, for me. So let's move on to the guy you, you, you were working for now. I mean, one of the, one of the interesting parts of that story is you actually ran, essentially ran an outside campaign against Bloomberg when he ran for mayor in 2005. Um, I'm, I was very, very much involved in defeating the nonpartisan elections referenda that he put on the ballot in 03. And I was, we, we, we made the election really a referenda on him and we were successful. So and then in, in 04 and 05, the state party was a client, and I was pretty tough. You were tu- consulting them. Yeah, I was pretty tough on him. Um, and when they reached out to me in 09, when Kevin Sheiky, who was his mm-hmm. principal guy, reached out to me in 09 and asked me to um, uh, come work for Mike, I said, you know, I've, I've been pretty unkind <laughs> to the mayor is he is he aware of that are you aware of that i i assume you all are and he said well you know what do you think of him now and i said i think he's been a really good mayor and i think he deserves to get reelected and he said if you say that to mike bloomberg that's all he'll want to hear and i have to tell you, you know, we live in a world that, in which a lot of people hold grudges yeah uh, for a very long time yeah and this is a guy who looked at me and knew what I had said about him and was willing to take me on and pretty pretty unusual very unusual yeah. yeah trust me and put me to work yeah yeah I mean that's um well I guess it bespeaks a certain sort of confidence uh to be able to do that as well there's some politicians who seem to want to make enemies and there are others who seem to want to make friends yeah I mean look one of the problems many problems that the president has right now in finding someone to work for him as chief of staff and in these other roles is that if you eliminate everybody who's ever said an unkind word about him, that's a very small universe from which to select. Very. And uh, and so, you know, he is where he is. He is a he's probably the uh, cover the cover boy for grudge. Loyalty is Grudges. important, but loyalty tests can go too far. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so you went to work for him, and you didn't went to work from not not just in a campaign, but you ended up being the deputy mayor in the city. How how was it moving? For, you had been in a legislative setting, uh, working for Nita Lowy. You ultimately were her chief of staff on the Hill, but this is a whole different thing running a city. Talk about that experience. Um, I loved it. Best job I ever had. Um, the, I would describe the difference between politics and government, at least at the municipal level. The politics, again, as you know, is a zero-sum game. There is, uh, in elections, there is a winner, there is a loser. Somebody wins everything, and the other person uh, wins nothing. Uh, it's a total zero-sum outcome. And even if you win by one vote, one person gets everything, the other person walks away with nothing. Government is... Uh, really, at least in the way we practice it, it is about win-win, right? You are negotiating with the same people again and again and again over legislation that people have a shared interest in, and you want to create outcomes where people all feel like they got something out of the process. Um, To me, that's what democracy... I don't want to be um, uh, overly uh, highfalutin about it, but to me, that's what democracy is really about. People uh, are sharing in... Uh, the culture of the city, and you want everyone to feel like they have a stake. And so you don't want to create a situation where people feel like they have nothing. Um, The best legislative outcomes are ones where people feel like they've participated in the process and they get something out of it. So there was a point in my life where I I became much more comfortable with the win-win scenario than the zero-sum scenario. Which is 
Interesting, because you are you. You know, I I used to have to go on television with you when we were representing different candidates, and that was about as much fun as a root canal for me, uh, because you were uh, you you were a very gifted kind of uh, verbal pugilist character. Yes. So um, so that's a quite. You know, I'm looking back at these quotes from 2005 about Bloomberg. Uh, from a, a memo of yours that somehow ma- made its way into public, and it says Mike Bloomberg is an out-of-touch billionaire who can't retain, uh, who can't relate to the problems of ordinary New Yorkers, and you know goes on. That was from my evil there. twin, as it turned out. <laughs> oh, that's your story. Fine, if he accepts that, he seems smarter than that. But um, but it does raise an issue, which is this sense that still permeates our uh, our politics today. Uh, that um, you know we have uh, we have a society that is in which people have been tremendously fortunate, and we have a society in which the gap between those people and other people is growing greater. New York is kind of ground zero for that because the financial industry is here. Uh, so, is the criticism that you made in two thousand and five a fair one? Do you think that a Bloomberg was sufficiently? sensitive to the experience of people who were on the outside of this economic miracle that uh, that is Wall Street and the financial I mean, miracle I'm being there are others who would describe it else uh, in other ways right look I think if you look at his 12-year record as mayor first of all he was elected three times in a city that is overwhelmingly democratic twice as a Republican and once as an independent and he got a lot well, of the last time was a Rough race. It was, you know, races can be close, but he was elected three times. Hundred million is helpful. It is, um, uh, but it's not dispositive. Mm-hmm. We we both know plenty of yeah. wealthy people who've spent a lot of money in losing causes. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a guy who got the votes of a lot of Democrats who care about issues like equity and inequality, and who saw in Mike Bloomberg somebody who was focused on creating jobs and opportunity for people in the city. And I think if you look at his record on education, if you look at his uh, record on um, uh, job creation and economic development, you'll see a guy who was really focused on creating the broadest base possible for advancement. And I think people recognize that. Not everyone, obviously. Um, but I, I would stack his record uh, in New York against any progressive Democrats uh, in the country in terms of focusing on issues of equity and opportunity. He just uh, made an extraordinary um, donation to uh, Johns Hopkins. Uh, what, $1.8 million? A billion? Billion. billion, yes. Billion, million, what the? <laughs> so uh, I know million, that's like lunch money. Exactly. Um, so, um, and talk about that. What What is the... I, so I'm I I have a couple of hats here. I obviously yeah. Involved. This is your this is your job now. You yeah. you 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 work on his yeah. philanthropy and yeah. you work on his politics. So putting the politics aside, so I run the education portfolio here at the foundation, and one of the um, areas of focus for us is providing opportunity for um, highly qualified, well qualified, low income and moderate income kids to go to college. And there is a, a phenomenon in the country where you've got a lot of these kids who undermatch. So a kid could, based on his scores and his, um, his resume, could, could conceivably get into a top-flight school, but uh, the kid doesn't apply to a top-flight school because doesn't see the opportunity, doesn't know it exists, concerned about the financial impacts, and sort of undermatches to a school that may mm-hmm. not be uh, as good as a school that he could get into, he or she could get into. Um, we have a program that's aimed at helping those kids. Um, we've got uh, virtual advisors who match with them to try to encourage them and help them with their essays and applications. And then we have a consortia of colleges called the American Talent Initiative, uh, uh, colleges that have agreed to take more Pell-eligible kids over time. Um, so that we've we're Pell grants Pell, for, yeah, for, uh, for kids who are essentially uh, low and medium income. Um, and the, the gift that he gave to Johns Hopkins, the $1.8 billion, is a very dramatic uh, extension of that work where basically 
he is providing the opportunity for Hopkins to commit to a needs-blind admissions process in perpetuity. So a kid who applies to Hopkins, if they're qualified to get in, Hopkins is going to make sure that they can go regardless of what the family income is. And so, you know, when you want to talk about uh, issues of equity and opportunity, um, that's something that I'm focused on every day uh, in the work that I do with the philanthropy and clearly something that animates him to the tune in this case of, you know, almost $2 billion. And he's done a lot of extraordinary uh, investing in uh, climate action, in, uh, in medical research, a whole array of, uh, of things. One would have to argue he's one of the most uh, active and impactful philanthropists in the, in the world. So at the age of 76, why would someone who has uh, done what he's done, has the means he has, has the impact that he has as a philanthropist, decide that maybe it's time to run for president of the United States? I think he is profoundly troubled by president's tenure in office uh, about the state of the country and the state of the world and thinks he can make a difference. Um, you know, he gave a speech in 2016 at the Democratic National Convention. He, uh, he was invited to come as, a, as an independent and, and speak on behalf of, of Hillary. And he really um, spoke with a lot of passion, um, warning about uh, what a Trump presidency would mean for the country and mean for the world. Um, and um, unfortunately for all of us, he was proved correct. The current administration has been a disaster in so many ways. And so many of the issues that he has spent uh, a lifetime fighting for, whether it be um, gun safety or... On which he's done a, a lot. Uh, or uh, uh, the work on climate or taking on uh, to the big tobacco uh, uh, consortia or educational equity and opportunity, job creation. All of those things are under threat uh, by this administration. I think he has done an extraordinary amount here at the foundation to fight this administration's agenda. I don't think anybody has done more, for instance, to take on the gun lobby and the NRA than Mike Bloomberg has. I don't think anybody's done more to fight the coal industry than Mike has. Um, but there's a lot more you can do as president than you can as a philanthropist, as, as great as his philanthropy is. And if he decides to run, it will be for that reason. Talk to me about the politics of that. I understand the argument for why he wants to be president, and I can make the argument for why he would be good at it. Um, but there's this thing called the nominating process that you have to go through. I, re I recall to it get in, there. in 2008. <laughs> exactly. And, um, you know, so a lot of the issues that you mentioned ha are double-edged swords in a big, diverse country, the issue of guns has been a troubling issue. Um, climate action, you know, the coal industry is, uh, you know, coal is, is, is uh, inarguably a big part of, of the, the problem. It's also a, 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 a important economic uh, element in some states. Well, I don't know. How, I don't think there's any Democrat who's going to run for president this time who, who should be willing to shy away from those issues if they yeah. are. I think the other element of it is you've got a progressive, uh, a progressive um, uh, cohort in the Democratic Party, and uh, the the ties to Wall Street, um, stop and frisk in New York, which is a policy that you were involved in, uh, is very controversial among elements of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, and so on. And more than that, culturally, there's a reason why no mayors of New York have ever really. Uh, uh, gone. Some have tried. Uh, John Lindsay, over in my lifetime, uh, tried to run for mayor of New York. Rudy Giuliani uh, haven't gotten very far, and they didn't have unlimited resources, which is a no small thing. But um, but I was thinking when he was he was in Iowa the other day, Bloomberg, which is in our business a tell, right? <laughs> and um, and I was thinking about Mike Bloomberg at the Iowa State fair in the summer by the butter cow watching people go by with their fried twinkies the guy who wanted to ban big gulp drinks in new york and i'm thinking how does this work i think he'd probably like a fried twinkie they're excellent by the way i've i've tasted them i i must admit 
on more than one occasion. I was going to say maybe more than one. On more than one, one occasion. The Snickers are good too. Look, I, I don't think that there is anybody running who can claim to have done as much as Mike has on issues that animate the Democratic electorate. Right? So a lot of great people running, a lot of people you and I know well, a lot of people you and I like. And all of them will, um, I think, have a, um, a story to tell um, and a set of policies that they will promulgate. Mike is somebody who's able to stand up and say, when it comes to guns, I took on the NRA. I took on the NRA and I've been beating them. Uh, when it comes to climate, I had the uh, temerity to stand up to the coal industry and help shut down the plants that were polluting the country and the world. Uh, when it comes to tobacco industry poisoning our kids and selling cigarettes to them, I've been the one who's been willing to stand up and take them on. So um, he has a record of accomplishment. Um, other people obviously also have records. And, uh, but I don't, I, I don't think anybody has done as much, whether it's jobs creation or equity around employment or education, um, as Mike has. And I think that that's a, a record that he will be... Should age be an issue? I mean, people are going to make all kinds of... Well, I mean, it's a legitimate question, isn't it? I mean, this is a... I sat next to the president of the United States for two years, and it, it's a, it is a really, really hard job. I mean, mayor of New York is a very hard job. Yeah. He hasn't been the mayor for no. six years. But people, you know, running for president is hard, and people are going to assess his fitness on the, on the trail. And if they think that it's a problem, they won't vote for him. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I think... Look, I think that, that on as I said, key areas of, of, of concern to Democrats. Not only does he check the box, but he has been a real leader. I also think that he's somebody who can take on Donald Trump. So we want somebody who stands for the things that we stand for, and we also want somebody who's going to win. We have to get this guy out of the White House. And Mike Bloomberg is not going to be intimidated by Donald Trump. He's not going to be afraid of Donald Trump. He has stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with a lot tougher characters as mayor of New York, as a business leader. Um, he's, he's an adult uh, and a very successful person. And you don't get to be as successful as he has shying away from fights uh, or being intimidated by people. Now, everybody is going to say, yeah, I can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Donald Trump. And people will make a decision about who they really think can be in that arena, can stand on that stage. I don't think there's any question that somebody like Mike Bloomberg, given his record of accomplishment over a lifetime, is somebody who can stand on the stage with Donald Trump and be successful. Yeah, I think that I think that the bigger issue would be: um, can people see him as someone who sees them in their lives? And uh, you know that that is that's challenging. What about you? You just ran. He just spent 112 million dollars again lunch money on uh on the 2018 election as i mentioned supporting uh uh both house candidates and some senate candidates uh obviously that's a good investment not just in the country but in a in a uh, uh potential campaign uh you see yourself saddling up for another campaign i should point out you were a guy who wouldn't even fly at one point that is correct for years yeah i've gotten over that thankfully um, How did you get over that? Uh, the joke that I tell, which I think has some grain of truth to it, is that um, after Hillary lost in 08, I was so depressed that I needed to get out of the country, and I didn't care whether I lived or died to do it. <laughs> so I got on a plane to the UK and was able to take a number of trips there and somehow just snapped out of it. If I could figure out the answer, I could write a book and make a lot of money. I, because I tried to hire you once, and I think you maybe drove out to I Chicago did. to talk about I it. Did. Uh, sadly, you 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 uh, rejected my importunings, but uh, who knows what history would have yeah, been? Yeah, imagine that. Uh, but um, but would you are you ready to commit yourself to another campaign? If if Mike runs, I will do anything I can that he wants me to do to be helpful to him. So certainly, yeah. yeah. You um, you were right in the middle of everything um, for many years in different form, different campaigns in the city. Um, it's a, your your life seems a little more normal uh, and subdued these days. Was was that an adjustment? Yeah, it's funny. So, um, uh, as as I've as you and I have talked about, you know, being in municipal government, being a deputy mayor, a mayor, 
you get to wake up every day and feel like you can make a difference in the life of the place that you live. And it's very energizing and enervating. And um, uh, a couple of days after we left City Hall, when the, our tenure, Mike's tenure in office was over, I woke up you know, early to read the New York Times, as I do, and there was a story about um, a company that was placing illegal uh, dumpsters in um, neighborhoods around the city, claiming that they were collecting clothes for charity, but actually taking the clothes and selling them. Um, and it was a scam. And in addition to the fact that they were scamming people into giving their clothes, uh, the dumpsters, uh, it was illegal to put the dumpsters on the street in the first place. So I read this and I got all excited. We're going to do something about this. And I started to compose a, an email to our sanitation commissioner to say, what are we going to do about this? And realized that he was not going to be responding to my email because he wasn't our sanitation commissioner anymore. So it is an adjustment when you leave government and you have the ability to really make a difference. And that ends rather quickly when you, when you leave office. Um, you know, I've and been, and not just the government, but you you kind of you were in the center ring, you know. Yeah, you know, I've been able to satisfy my own desire and um, to to remain involved in politics by doing it uh, every two years as opposed to every day. Um, I had an enormously great time this last few months working on these races. Um, because may, you're a competitive son of a gun. I am, but also because look, these are great candidates. It was really thrilling to, to support them. These are really interesting people who've done an awful lot of great things with their lives. Um, but, you know, I helped make the ads. I uh, helped design the polls. You'd read the polls. You'd target the resources. Yeah. And I had a great time doing that. But But I also have a really great time running our education portfolio and I have frankly an even better time spending time with my kids. Yeah, I know um, that's important to you. Uh, and so do you think it's more important to you because of your own I mean you must have a you must have a a, a a deep appreciation. I know I do my parents split up when I was a kid but well, how one of the things, how nurturing that family unit is. One of the things that I you, you wrote a great book uh, about your life and your time in office, which I imagine the listeners have have read, but if they haven't, they should. Thank one you. Of things that I really Thank you. I'm glad you said it and not me. <laughs> one of the things I really admire about the book is that you grapple with these questions about work-life balance. Um, and uh, um, the story that, that um, is, is most meaningful to me, so the, the 07, 08 campaign for both of us, I think, was all-consuming. Um, in ways that were pretty unhealthy in terms yeah. of trying to find a balance in life. And I would, had been spending a lot of time with my daughter, who at that point was, uh, was three. And one of the things that I tried to do every day was to either drop her off or pick her up from daycare, regardless of what I was doing. And I felt that this was you know, a way that I was able to, to spend time with her in a way that was meaningful. And I got a call one day uh, at daycare and they said, you know, Sarah Kate got into a fight with another kid. And I think, uh, thinking to myself, you know, what kind of fight does a four-year-old get into um, in a playground and a daycare? And uh, I said, why? And, you know, what, what happened? And, and they said, well, when we asked her why she did it, she said, um, I'm angry because I never see my daddy. Oh, my. And um, that was a really important moment uh, mm -hmm. for me. Um, you know the, the 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 bond between a, a a parent and a child is there's nothing more important, and um, uh, I think since then I have tried to create a little bit more of a balance in my own life between my professional pursuits, which are really meaningful to me, um, and um, and time with my kids, which ultimately is more meaningful. Um, I do work for a great boss in terms of... And he, by the way, may have heard what you just said and decided, hell, I can't run for president. <laughs> I, I can't do that to the Wolfsons. I don't, I don't think that's going to be the decisive factor. Um, but I work in a place that, that allows, allows people to, to create some balance in their lives, um, which is something that he encourages uh, uh, people to do. Um, you know, if he runs for office, um, that'll be my priority. Uh, but the the life that I've been able to carve out for myself 
with my family since 08 um, is really important to me. I guess the other thing I would say is um, prior to 2008, uh, I would have said that my you know, dream job was to work in the White House and be the press secretary or the communications director. And I wasn't, it wasn't clear to me at that point that I could be satisfied professionally if, if I hadn't accomplished that. And now I sort of think I'm fine with it. I mean, it would have been a great job. I would have loved to do it. Um, maybe They'll so. probably be looking for one shortly if you want to yeah, apply. Exactly. But listen, you've had a hell of a run, and uh, uh, I, I admire you greatly, and I appreciate your friendship, and I appreciate everything you do for the Institute of Politics. At Howard Wilson, it's great to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.